0: Welcome to another episode of the Covenant
1: Community Kids Podcast. I am Jackie Jones. I'm Evie Jones.
2: I'm Jesse Wilson.
1: Yay! Hi, Jesse.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Evie. Hi, Jackie. It's really, it's so good to be here. Yeah, it's enjoyable hearing uh, Evie saying she's trying to make you laugh. And I just watched the season finale or series finale of succession. I don't know if you guys Oh, I saw haven't that started it all, yet. It's, you know, a bunch of siblings who are not nearly as well adjusted and loving as you two towards each other <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> they for funny. one of the first times have an opportunity to laugh together as siblings uh, in the series finale and uh I'm not going to say you guys reminded me of that, but somehow that came into my
0: mind. <laughs> <laughs> I thought,
2: I'm so glad I'm not in a podcast with those siblings. Man. <laughs> um, I
0: love to watch it. That sounds fun. I mean, you know, I'm grateful that we have a very loving relationship, but I still think it's very entertaining <laughs> to watch the dynamics of siblings. Yes, yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. I love those Yeah, images. I have five
2: sisters now, and I'm so grateful that uh, they are not the Roys.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you, where do you fall in there?
2: I'm the oldest. And I, yeah. So I discovered not that long ago, I don't know, we ordered pizza together and apparently I traumatized all my sisters. They can't eat pizza in peace. They feel like they have to just eat it as quickly as possible. And they're like, yeah, Jesse, when we were growing up, like if we didn't just eat it super fast, you'd eat it all. And I I felt kind of bad. That's
1: so. (laughs) No, I actually, um, sent a text to our sibling group chat recently and was like, do any of you guys have, like, food scarcity issues? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I yes. feel like, especially if I'm somewhere new, I just have to eat constantly. <laughs> yeah.
0: And we were all kind of, like, in our own different ways. Huh. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So funny.
2: Yeah, that's people like my... My fault, and uh, I apologize on behalf oh. of all.
1: Listen, you were just the fastest brother. <laughs> yeah, so as been a big family.
2: <laughs> what is that Fleet Mall diagram where he talks about the drama triangle and the empowerment triangle? And there's like one way of viewing ourselves as victims, and everyone else mm. has to either be a rescuer or a prosecutor. Oh, yeah. But, oh. but the other way is as we're co-creators, and so everything's either a challenger or a coach. And so okay. I like to think like of that. myself as a challenger. Yeah. Yeah. For my for my sisters, yeah, uh,
0: oh yeah, eating, yes. they learn right? survival yeah. skills. Yeah,
2: yeah. I'm a gift to them. Is we what are. I like we to blessed think blessed. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> they should be grateful.
2: <laughs> I'll pass this podcast That's on funny. to them. When we're done, okay, good. They Perfect. can hear you say That's that what instead doing. of me. <laughs>
0: Awesome. Well, speaking of the podcast, how did you find out about this? I'm always curious to hear.
2: From yeah, I found out about this through my dad. Actually, uh, I think we were having a uh, you know a dinner on his porch during COVID, uh, you know, where we weren't inside, and mm-hmm. he he had recently. Written a retraction of the obedient child. Uh, my dad wow. happened to be the named author of the obedient child, and um, sorry you
0: know. S- for I'm not super familiar with the book. I haven't read it, but yeah. I've heard of it. Good Do you for mind you. Just like
2: <laughs> <really>? <laughs> yeah, the obedient child was uh, like a parenting manual that was published. I think the day before my seventeenth birthday, written by my mom and dad. I think you know, commissioned by the community forwarded by Ralph Martin. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know, it included all sorts of instructions on how to raise one's children written by a, you know, late 20s, 30 year old. Uh, right. I think <laughs> probably because my parents maybe had some of the most and oldest kids in the community, because, you know, we got involved,
1: sure.
2: uh, like, right around the time I was born, and I was their first kid. And I don't think that you know, there weren't like a ton of uh, families who were in leadership at that
0: mm-hmm.
2: level. It was mostly, you know, the servants of the word yeah. guys. And so, so the yeah. The guiding
0: lights of parenthood.
2: <laughs> yeah. So somehow my parents became the like parenting gurus. And after the release of that book, you know, would like travel the country to different communities and do conferences and, and, uh, yeah, it was called the obedient child. And, um, <laughs> my cousin uh had a baby not too many years ago and my dad found an old copy of the obedient child and had gone through it with a red pen crossing out everything he disavowed which was most wow. of the book wow. and made comments in the margins like saying this is bullshit etc and handed that <laughs> wow. to them as oh. their like baby <laughs> shower gift along That's with true. a copy of like a, a you know some book by a psychologist who it's you know, kind of beautiful talking about yeah, 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 my family, my parents went through quite a journey, you know Clearly. over time from that time, but that 's yeah. what, yeah,
0: so he wrote a retraction,
2: yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. so he'd yeah. written I think maybe he 'd been in touch with John, you know, who runs the the website or somebody like that who you know had been reaching out with some questions and and you know, as I said, my dad had gone on quite a journey and was in a very different place, and so uh, I think as an attempt to, because it, he'd asked the publisher years ago to stop uh, selling it and had stopped selling it. But Amazon has this aftermarket where you can sell used copies and had begun oh. putting it up again. And so he wanted to write a review, uh, essentially saying, don't buy this book. So we'd been talking about that. And he mentioned to me, oh, well, there's, you know, I was talking with John It has this, and there's also this uh, community kids podcast you might find really interesting as a community kid <laughs> and so i searched it found it i think the first episode i heard was Tim rouch and i was like i want to be friends with these people which is not like i don't think that's my ulterior motive but that was the feeling inside you <laughs> know? Like, i want to be friends with these people yeah. <laughs> these are that's great really sweet. and uh yeah and then it wasn't long after that that you had the um like a get together at uh yeah. at the uh bar in Ypsilani. Yeah, yeah,
0: the wax bar.
2: Yeah, which was, you know, such a such a fascinating experience to run into some of people I grew up with yeah. who were there who lived in different parts of the country or whatever, who just happened to maybe be in town. It must have been over a holiday season. Yeah. That we were I think there. we did
0: over Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And <laughs> as well as like people that have just come out of or are coming out of their experiences of still growing up in you know various expressions of the covenant community that you know remain in this area and that mm-hmm. that was fascinating because I was a pastor for years and some of those families or people connected to those families would come to the church I pastored so I had some like oh, wow. vague yeah. connection but not really an awareness of how intensely uh, people were still involved I could tell other stories about uh, connecting with people over the years and maybe it'll come up along the way but uh i think some folks who are friends of yours became friends of mine as well i just didn't know the connections at the time yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and so anyway that that uh experience at the bar was just delightful and you could get a sense of the the value and the power of shared experience because you you know you know what it's like to talk to somebody who has no experience their raising was part of a different anxious system than our anxious system. Yeah. yeah. And so (laughs) the the details of ours are so idiosyncratic and and strange (laughs) that you become like a party trick at any party. we are like, come here, Jesse's story. You won't (laughs) believe (laughs) what kind of fucked up stuff he experienced growing up, which is fun. But also, you know, (laughs) you're you're a thing, not a person at that point, right? Uh, And in that, in that wax bar, like we were, we just had this share. Common bond, and I suspect that must be the feeling uh, people get listening to these stories uh, on That's the podcast. Awesome. Thank
1: you for saying that. Yeah, that was a really cool event to host, and I was so pleased with the turnout. And it was so cool that like we met you there, and we were like, "Wait, you're you're the obedient child?" <laughs> like, you know, it, it was like, "Whoa, how did all these people find out about this? You were a celebrity." <laughs> Not to make you yeah, feel like singled a, out, even within that group. But right. <laughs> I
2: was oblivious. Uh, maybe we'll get to that. But I was oblivious to that at the time. Yeah. yeah. Until I went to a year later after it was released. I went to Belfast to live with after us. the book
0: was released. Yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, after my senior year of high school, I went to Belfast to live with the Servants of the Word a household oh, wow. uh, for a year and when i got off the plane at the airport in belfast like i heard shouts of it's the obedient child and i oh was like God. i was i didn't understand what was happening yeah, and yeah. you know I had to sort of do the math and figure out oh this book in this place has Means, become like yeah. the parenting manual and people associate me with that uh with that so the weird. book wasn't actually about me although i i understand the I understand the connection. In some ways, it was, uh, you know, I was connected to it. So, yeah.
0: Wow. I just imagine that that probably felt like a lot of pressure. Like, I could see myself being like, oh, oh, shit. Okay, I'm the obedient child. I have to be so obedient. <laughs> <laughs> right. What was that like?
2: It felt like a lot of pressure is a really interesting way to describe it, because I think it was a lot of pressure that I was not conscious of mm. but mm, sure. my body felt it as pressure certainly and later i began to realize and recognize the pressure that was going on with that but i was a you know i was a tall athletic white uh reasonably, like naturally bent towards good behavior. Like that was an easy mold for me to fill growing up. And I had these like miraculous birth stories that I absorbed growing up that sort of made me feel like I'm special. And I have this like role and mission to play that's that the world is depending on. And I was like, you know, you watch the hero movies and you're like, at least for me, I I liked being that character. I I wanted to be that because it also came with a lot of craze and mm-hmm. a lot of uh, strokes to the ego and a lot of opportunities that I thoroughly enjoyed. Thoroughly is maybe not quite the right word, but consciously I thoroughly yeah, yeah. enjoyed those traveling to other parts of the world, getting flown in to speak places as a kid, wow. things like that, that, you know, my, my ego loved and some part of my like natural oh,
1: sure.
2: uh, wiring, you know, could could find a way to resonate with and and fit into without it like cracking me too much but by the time i don't know 13 years old or something like that um you you'd think i'd remember this because it was quite a big moment in my life but when i first encountered the sears catalog at my grandfather's place and it had the ladies underwear section and it you know this like Thrill in my body, and no one had ever talked to me about what the heck that experience was, mm. and of and, uh, and then doing the math a little bit later because I wasn't that stupid, and going, oh, that's this thing, <laughs> this thing that's awful and bad, and so I've I'm done supposed it
0: to stay away from, yeah,
2: because yeah, yeah. I had the feeling like it's me and Jesus are the sinless ones. Like I'm, I know no one else is, oh. but I could probably get closer than anyone else I know. Was wow. my like Damn. feeling growing up and it, you know i no doubt i was already even in that hubris uh, you know <laughs> already so far off the mark but uh <laughs> but but that you know my eventually my dad found out cuz he asked about it in a very gracious way and I told him about it. And he was, you know, as generous with me as somebody in that context could be and not adding shame to it or whatever. But you know, you pick up what's in the water. And I picked up that uh, basically if I don't get this under control, uh, that I won't be able to help Jesus save the world Mm -hmm. and like I'll have failed at my destiny. And so this like, you know, setting this aside, uh as a thing that I couldn't really accept as part of me and I and you know trying to figure out a story where I'm conquering and I'm you know and I'm even if I'm not like able to overcome this I'm better than everyone else I know about it you know and uh just yeah so all that's going on and I got this headache when I was 13 years old that uh just started while I was cleaning the room one day hmm. and I was going to Huron Valley School at the time. I was part of the first class that started at Huron Valley School in Ypsilanti. And by now, it was our third year or ninth grade year. And uh, it kept me out of school. The, the headache wow. was so intense. I ended up being hospitalized and seeing headache specialists uh, from around the world and various alternative therapies and nothing worked. Hmm. Finally got to a point where I could cope with it. And then my senior year of high school, it—I I was a basketball player, and it like I got hit in the nose and knocked unconscious briefly for a second. When I woke up, my headache was so intense again. I missed the whole second half of my senior year of high school.
0: Wow. And so,
2: so when I was in Ireland, I had this—I uh, had come to a point of finding a way to sort of overcome it. You know, like I could get through things, mm-hmm. generally speaking and um somewhere around the christmas time frame uh in belfast the my head pain got so bad that i was not able to like still go to the community gathering that was happening on sunday evening or make it to the lord's day celebration that the brothers were doing or whatever it might be and i was just like beating myself up for like failing and i was like i am gonna beat this thing wow and You know the path of resistance is not typically a path to health yeah and i i got super depressed i felt feverish i wanted to uh find a gun and end my life or you know it's funny i had these two options in my mind if i could find a way to end my life that would be great or i could go down to the corner store and buy porn somehow in my mind that was
0: whoa that was
2: the way now i'd never bought porn, like at this time you had to get magazines.
0: But the fact that those two isn't were that, equal. In isn't your that mind
2: interesting? Is... Yeah, I was oblivious. I was, you know, I'm saying this seeing it then. Yeah. But at that right. time, uh, you know, those were like those were the end end me options. Yeah. And and I clearly something in me, my body was keeping the score on that on that pressure and and it needed to be it needed to be stopped somehow. Uh, the story is too long to tell now, but I ended up having like a pretty profound mystical slash spiritual experience of Jesus coming to me and saying, Hey, whenever it's too much for you, just give it to me and I'll take it. And there's a sort of like weird exchange where from that point on for the rest of my life until, uh, until I stopped experiencing the headache, um, which was for decades, uh, anytime it would get more intense, I thought I couldn't make it to a thing, whatever the thing was, a thing I wanted to do, or a thing I felt like I needed to do, uh, wanted to do, wasn't really ever factor into the equation. Cause I didn't have an awareness of what I wanted. I'd just become somebody who was super good at figuring out what other people wanted from me, yeah. um, or justifying what I wanted as something that would be good for other people. This <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> is more the yeah. bullshit version of that. And, uh, And I would just be like, okay, here's, you know, we made a deal. And, and then I would forget, I would not be aware of the head pain and I'd be able to like go on and, and do the thing. Yeah. And as I look back now, it's like what I needed was a way out, but I wasn't ready for the way out
0: because the
2: way out was not a way out of the pain. Yeah it wasn't a way out of life it was a way out of that system that i played a role in that was rewarding me for doing things that were killing me um and uh but i was not aware of it at that stage in my life and so you know i continued to get the rewards from some version of that system uh for for many many years to come
1: wow that's wild. I don't
2: remember the question you asked. It was something about the, obe- oh, the, the sense of pressure <laughs> from the obedient child. Yeah, yeah the pressure, yeah, so... yeah.
0: And how your body responded. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. there yeah. it
2: is. But I loved the, you know, I loved the pressure. I loved the feeling of someone giving me a challenge and like, mm-hmm. you know, like rising to it, or at least my ego did. Some part of me loved that. So I just wasn't conscious of that pressure as a negative
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I feel like
2: damaging thing
1: when trauma manifests in our bodies, it's so hard to see that that's what's happening like like you have a headache and also you're doing like there's no there's not enough like dialogue around thinking about our spiritual and emotional and physical selves as one thing so it's like how on earth would you have put that together and then i'm sure also reaching that point where you could just kind of like give some of it up and and have that release probably was like extra rewarding and extra like you
0: know I'm doing the right things and I'm really interested well. in the psychology of offering it up because that's what it it feels like maybe that what process was because I remember often doing that as a kid like if I had I I used to have really bad stomach aches and then I would have panic attacks from those stomach aches and it was just like a whole cycle and um I was always encouraged to offer it up to somebody else who needed that pain to be used for good is kind of how I thought of it. And so it was like, okay, I will do that. But then it also felt like a mental way for myself to let go of that anxiety and maybe subconsciously release my grip on it. And it was, yeah, it was, I'm just very interested in the psychology of like, how physical pain starts to release after some part of your brain accepts to let go a little bit and it's just very interesting.
2: yeah yeah it's it for me in my experience, at least with respect to the head pain and I think what you're saying probably means it applies to you know almost an infinite number of human experiences, the pressure to perform to be somebody I wasn't to like, fill a mold that isn't a true, like fractal pattern of the universe, right? But is this like, square box of good kid who serves this organization's goals um, is, uh, is a way of denying what is real or try attempting to deny what is real. Mm -hmm. And the pain was a function of that attempt to deny. And the letting go in some ways of the pain or offering it to someone else was was the beginning of me going, this isn't my thing to hold.
1: Yeah. And in truth, the
2: whole thing wasn't a thing for me to hold. But I could only begin by like not holding the sort of consequence or symptom of it. It's a really, it's yeah. really.
0: And by giving it to Jesus, it's a way that you are allowed to let go. Yeah, right?
2: the, there was like yeah. this one little loophole in the system that that like was that seed, like that inception seed that, you know, sort of undoes the whole thing uh, once it's in there. Yeah. Oh, that's I'm so grateful for this conversation already. Me too. Uh, Jackie, just for that. Uh, little insight you've opened up for me. Thank you.
0: Oh yeah, thank you too. I mean, yeah, I feel like that's not something I've thought about very much at all recently, and just you just reminded me of that. Like, yeah, wow. I used to do that a lot. Like, offer, offer it up. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people mm-hmm. listening too yeah. can remember that. Yeah,
2: you're, you know, you're bringing to mind. Uh, and if if this story ends up being not the right fit for this podcast, we can pull it out later, but. You're reminding me of another experience I had with my headache that I hadn't put into this bucket before. But uh, in when I was 17, uh, Thomas Monahan, who the founder of Domino's Pizza, former owner of the Detroit Tigers, I think Ralph Martin was his spiritual director, he wasn't officially part of the Word of God, which is the covenant community I grew up in. Uh, he, uh, I think, his, maybe his real motivation is he wanted to start a pants factory uh, in Honduras with cheaper labor. But but there was some connection with Honduras. And so he had a mission, a group of like our high school group went to Honduras for a, a mission, I'm using air quotes, mm-hmm. a mission trip, and, uh, you know, flew us all down there and provided for it to happen. And while there, uh, we left the capital city, San Pedro Sula, where there must have been some form of like emerging covenant community happening into the mountains where this uh, Roman Catholic church had a little outpost. And we were going to teach the the farmers how to do terrace farming on the hillsides uh, of City Boys. I mean, there's just so many, so many layers (laughs) of what is uh, broken in colonial uh, Western you know christianity yeah. but um yeah that's what we were going to do so we'd work out on the the fields all day you know like trying to make them flat not knowing at all what we're doing and and we'd come back at nights and we'd stay in this like room adjacent to the sanctuary in the catholic church And we were informed that there was, well, we noticed this like younger, maybe 12, 13 year old girl who was sort of following us everywhere. And so we'd inquired about who she was. And the priest told us it was the servant of the witch in town and that she was keeping an eye on us. And so like, if you were part of covenant community in the time I was, there was such an emphasis on spiritual warfare and demons and like, you know, all of this. And like, so, Oh, a witch was like, wow we didn't even know those were like Keeping real we knew Whoa. like oh this yeah. is the devil and we are from god and like can you imagine oh, no. the oh, the like no. setup yeah wow. and so yeah. Uh, some of us began to get sick and one guy in particular got pretty sick he was like laid out and um another of the like adult leaders and one of our friends was like attending to him and the friend, I'm going to try not to name names here, but the, the friend, uh, reported seeing a demon clutching on this guy's chest, like a little, like imagine a, uh, you know, on Notre Dame, one of those little gargoyle type things. And, uh, you know, it freaked out and like run upstairs and the leader had run after him. He's like, what did, what happened? He's like, I saw this demon on his chest. And, and so we're all hearing this story and we're getting a little bit, you know, amped spiritually amped up by this. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and so some of the leaders go into the sanctuary, to like pray. They're going to do some intercessory prayer in there. And, and somebody that the the leader has the kid who saw the demon, like do a little mini exorcism on the guy who's feeling sick oh, and he, wow. he sees the demon let go and like disappear. And it's like, Oh, now we are super jazzed up because like, this is it's happening. Jesus we is just winning. Fought yeah. A demon. Yeah, we're doing bad. <laughs> we're teaching these people how to farm. <laughs> we're getting rid of their demons. <laughs> and so so we oh, begin to wow. have like a little prayer meeting where, you know, because there's clearly more, Jesus has more for us to do. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys sees like a vision of this dark cloud over the city. And it's the spirit that's oppressing this little village. Mm-hmm. And he has a name for it. I, you know, it's uh, s- <laughs> both <Balthazar. laughs> you know, like something, the
0: scientific term.
2: <laughs> and, uh, and so we're like, okay, we got a name. We know what to do with this in the name of Jesus Christ. We rebuke you. And at that moment, there's this like blood curdling scream from the sanctuary it's yes, like a goat's being slaughtered kind of whoa. sound. What? And, um, and we're all like, whoa. And then oh, the leaders boy. who had been doing intercessory prayer come in, and they're like, um. so we were in there praying. And that girl who's been following us opened the door of the sanctuary, and came up to the altar, and let out this like blood curling scream, and then ran out of the sanctuary.
0: What? What? Right, (laughs) um, you know, so some kind of spiritual crossover or something, what the heck is going on? We
2: interpreted that, you know, (laughs) of course, in the way we would interpret that, where, you know, God has won and the devil has lost. Oh, boy. You know, but what happened for me is the next day I got what I perceived to be heat stroke. Uh, working out there in the fields and the head pain got so bad, I had to get bussed back into San Pedro Sula where there was air conditioning and like a way to recover from the heat stroke. And, you know, as I've reflected back on that experience in my life, you know, the lens through which I have it is that, you know, if anything in the the gospel narratives, the story we have about Jesus, you know, he would name the demons with the names of the, the empire oppressor legion you know etc and that the empire in fact is the demonic force that's oppressing the impoverished and the vulnerable And you know and and I it was almost as if my body knew I was participating Mm -hmm. in in the energy I did not want to participate in and was like I got to get you the fuck out of here because you're not gonna do it the story your ego is telling you is gonna keep you in this place participating in this thing I got to get you out and uh, and I thought of it as a failure story like I didn't have enough strength to stay and I was you know a loser for not overcoming this pain and all of that at the time but yeah it's all flipped around now it's so interesting how the body has this seems to have this intelligence and awareness of like what is true and real and uh, it sort of doesn't care what your ego thinks right Uh, at least it didn't care about mine and I'm so grateful for that yeah in in the end
0: yeah the communication between the body and the ego is really interesting and yeah I feel like it definitely was talking to you <laughs> like you, this is yeah. not it? We yeah. <laughs> gotta yeah. get out of here. Yeah, my yeah. ego
2: raised an unhealthy body, and uh, I, you know, I'm I'm hoping to, you know, cooperate with my body and raising a healthier ego at this at this yeah. point in my yeah. life. You know, trying the care and feeding of a healthy ego. It would be a book I'd love to read.
1: Right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or right? Maybe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fuck the obedient child. Right. Let's get, let's get back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: Um if you don't mind backing up a little sure. bit, um I would love to hear about your family life a little bit more and you know we talked about the obedient child and how your dad wrote that and I know that he was pretty instrumental also in um the split. Yeah. And so I would love to hear from your perspective um what that process was like maybe uh being in the family of deconstructing going yeah. from obedient child to retracting sure. it I know that's kind of a, a big topic so start wherever you you <laughs> choose <laughs>
2: I, I'll give the not the longest answer but a, a, a fuller answer to that question if I can please by maybe providing a little context which is my parents were atheists when I was born they were. Um, They grew up in Detroit, uh, met in high school and, uh, you know, began to fall in love or at least, you know, have uh, affection for one another. And it was at a time when you couldn't get birth control if you weren't 18 and you couldn't find information about birth control because you couldn't talk to an adult about it without, you know, uh, coming under judgment or, or fear and uh, there was no internet so they went to the library and they uh learned uh what they could from the library which was the the rhythm method the classic uh you know non-birth control birth control it was very
1: responsible and, of
2: them yeah actually yeah, yeah. uh <laughs> and and uh none
1: Right. Nonetheless,
2: <laughs> life found a way, and uh, eventually that life would become me. Mm. And so they, they weren't sure if they were pregnant, and they went to the, their doctor, and the nurse was like, do you use birth control? And they probably said, well, we use the, the rhythm method, and she checked no on the, <laughs> oh. on the sheet. Yeah. And they were like, <laughs> no. oh, no. Oh, shit, yeah. really? <laughs> yeah, Aww. and I, I think the doctor um, tried to sort of mercifully offer them a pill that would help them tell if they were pregnant or not, which probably was some kind of like plan B. Right. Um, and uh, and they went to a doors concert that last night, that night, the last night of the doors tour. Oh my gosh. Or the last year of the doors tour. And uh, when they came back, you know, the the evidence that something was different was still going on, so they knew they were pregnant. And they you know, they're pretty avowed atheists. Like my dad had been like, God, if if you exist, I don't need you when he was like thirteen, fourteen years old. So they're pregnant and they moved to Ann Arbor for, uh, to go to University of Michigan, both of them. And they're sort of, you know, they're not popular with their family. They're disconnected now from their friends because they're in a new place. And yeah. they, my mom especially really needed support and community. I think she went to her first year at U of M, but, but then started bleeding and having like some really, Mm. uh, difficulties where the doctor were like, you're going to lose your child. Uh, it can't survive this. Uh, so prepare for that. And my parents were, you know, pretty distraught about that. She was hospitalized for a few days with the bleeding and they had some like Jesus freak friends who were like, we'll show you. And they, they like gathered together and prayed and the bleeding stopped. And that like sort of, you know, made them go, what's up with this? That's part of the story I grew up with that, you know, made me feel like special. I brought my parents to faith and yada, yada, yada. And, um, began reading the gospels and in that environment, the people they met, because their Jesus Freak friends were in Detroit, and that was a little ways to go. And the closest thing they could find was what was there was some Indian Pentecostal uh, and some community people, you know, that emerging community. And so they got involved. But I. I don't think my dad would have gotten involved without the needs that my mom has it's just not how he's wired he's kind of he's not much of a joiner uh, he can be cynical about things etc but I think he you know he's sort of desperate with I got this little baby and you know this uh, new wife and they're eighteen years old and Jeez. so they they both jumped in both feet, and he also had some of the characteristics and qualities that were praised and nurtured and, you know, all of that. And um, and I, my mom died a number of years ago and we found her journals and we could find her writing about just this torturous pain of I need to become this person that is like a servant to my husband and like all of these, like, she was a handmaiden, Aww, you know, and yeah. so you see her journaling about Jesus, I'm going to do this for you. And it was clearly like going against the grain of her natural personality. She yeah. had to like sublimate uh, some of that. I didn't
0: realize so
2: anyway- that. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I just, you
0: just said something that um, caught my attention. I didn't realize that there were handmaidens in Ann Arbor when it first started. I knew that was a People of oh, yeah. Praise thing,
2: but. Uh, I, yeah, my experience growing up, and I could be wrong, was that because of Ann Arbor's publishing arm, uh, Servant Publications, and because, you know, so many people in grad school and all that, well, People of Praise was in Notre Dame, right? So it had a similar right. dynamic, but because of the publishing arm, Ann Arbor became sort of Mecca for the charismatic, Ecumenical Charismatic Renewal Movement in the world. And so a lot of the things that sort of were brewing here either made their way out or things I that see. were happening other places very quickly found attachment here. So I'm not sure where it started, but it was definitely a big part. Uh, yeah, when Handmaid's Tale uh, came out, and Margaret Atwood and all that, um, who I'm sure had connections with some forms of covenant community she in did, her own yeah. life.
0: She had um Pulled articles about Covenant community as part of her inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank goodness. for <laughs> though. I mean, There's that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Sometimes you need to be able to see the thing yep. uh, clearly when it's hidden, right? And so what a gift she is, as disturbing as it is. Uh, anyway, so my experience of my parents growing up, though, was that they were participants in this thing and also in some small ways insulators personally from the more extreme forms of it mm. like uh, there would be missives that would be really damaging to my friends because of the way their parents sort of owned and incorporated those directions and and ways of doing things in their family that were not the way i experienced them mm. even though my parents were leaders in the thing that had all of this they would modulate them in certain ways so um it, at least that was the case for me as a boy yeah because of my dad's sort of inclinations my sisters i have five i i had you know three during community years a fourth who was there sort of just after that um and then a fifth a stepsister who came later after my mom died but um they they were raised by my mom whose energy had to go into like owning the thing
0: mm-hmm. in
2: order to at all fit into it where my dad you know there's sort of this male privilege of you can you can play your role but also be who you are in your own little yeah. spaces you have a little more power in the system
0: to make. yeah
2: yeah so i experienced it in a a little bit more modulated way you know in the sense that for example when you know my dad and i had this talk about masturbation you know he's able to like say to me it's okay it's like not the worst thing it's you know not a big deal yada 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 mm-hmm. then when i wake up in the morning and my mom gives me this big hug and this knowing smile and i'm like oh no <laughs> My my mom knows, you know. Like, <laughs> oh oh I'm no! So yeah. embarrassed, I, you know. But they still they they treated me with a certain kind of grace yeah, around so things good. that that weren't a function. That's not the system's posture, right? Towards all of that.
0: Oh yes, right. right. Not and at all.
2: Yeah, and <laughs> not at all. And my sisters experienced, I think, much more. Maybe not directly from my mom, but they had less insulation from the system's posture towards who they uh, were and what they could become. My oldest sister uh, was the first one to get out when she took a a women's studies class in uh, in college. And when I say get out, we were out of the community by then because of the thing you're asking about uh, what happened with my family's evolution and my dad's especially and all of that. But we were still all part of a religious system still, even if it wasn't the community. Mm -hmm. And my sister, Maya, got out of the whole thing much earlier because the impact of that system on her was so toxic and she could be aware of it Mm -hmm. and feel it in a way that i i couldn't so um so you know growing up we did all the all the things the life in the spirit seminars but like we did it at home with my parents before at huron valley school so by the time huron valley school comes where i'm with my peers and Mm -hmm. oh the pressure i got to speak in tongues etc i'd done in a much safer environment Mm -hmm. so my friends are experiencing this in the like institutionalized upper room at huron valley school where it's just like loaded with are you going to be accepted if you do this or not and i'm doing it in a context where at least i know my parents love me and and they're able to like nuance it and like sort of and I embraced it because that's the kind of kid I was. Again, I'm sure my sisters experienced it differently Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) than Mm -hmm. I did.
2: But, you know, that's an example of the ways in which my experience was a little bit different than my peers because of that buffering thing. And then when I you know, when we would go to like Pine Hills Camp or some like big youth event, um, there'd be various speakers always. And those speakers would be you've heard community speakers, you've heard talks, you know, there's a certain uh, dogmatic uh, not very playful mm-hmm. approach to engaging with whatever the topic or stories are and my dad was very literary and and uh, he loved the gospels because of the stories and the like nuance and so sometimes he'd get invited and I'd always just be so excited because my friends would be pumped that my dad was gonna talk because they knew it was like going to be fun and they'd laugh Aww. and there'd be like room to like yeah think about it in Various ways, uh, as opposed to here's a toe the line thing now or a rah, rah, rah that you've all got to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, when I went away to Belfast, Northern Ireland, and I'm sure the servants of the word were looking to recruit the three of us who went, you know, in one way or the other, because we were all, uh, it's a horrible term, but it was a term that was bandied about in our hearing. We were blue chippers, you know, we were we were like the best and the brightest uh, in our in our class uh, yeah. of likely to serve God and do powerful things for God in the world and all of that. And so, and uh, you know, I a, know we...
1: I'm sorry. Just as an insert, because I'm thinking like, okay, Belfast, servants of the word, what do we know about mm-hmm. this? What has all been coming yeah. out? Like, that is a yeah. tumultuous place and time that you're going into and yeah. expected to be... Really, yeah. you know, absorbed into.
2: It's within a year or two of youth initiatives being founded. Is okay. when we were there. The troubles wow. were still going on in Northern Ireland. Yeah. So it was a fascinating time Jeez. to be there. Yeah, a, a bomb shook our house at one point, knocked things off the shelves, and we get stopped at guard checkpoints. You know, with machine guns pointed at us and such. It was an interesting time to be there, and and yeah, a, a number of the people uh, who have. Uh, been participants in really heinous, awful things uh, were part of that system while we were there. To my knowledge, neither I nor the other guys who were there experienced any of those more egregious, you know, abuse type things, but also we were guys, we were men boys or whatever. Um, That didn't seem to be the direction in which that energy went at that time, at least. Mm -hmm. Um, So Yeah, so we were, I was there uh, in 1989, end of 1989, beginning of 1990. And during that time, uh, there were some questions here in the Word of God communities sort of the spirit had started by then Uh, there were these you know this organization of communities but word of god certainly was the power player and sort of the spirit was sort of the umbrella where the most powerful players in the word of god were also you know uh uh, with this sort of the spirit thing especially the servants of the word guys but there had been some um concerns about the training course and its impact on uh especially on women on men's and women's relationships etc and my dad being married having at that time uh three daughters two dot three dot yeah three daughters (laughs) uh trying to do the math on my family at that point (laughs) um was becoming sensitized to the toxic effects of the patriarchal structure and some of the um ways in which the training course you know, he'd been a household leader, like I, I, when I was first a kid, we grew up in common with everyone's so everyone had pooled money. And then as that wow. shifted, we'd have, you know, usually somewhere between six and eight single adults living with our family, That's a lot. men and women. So he'd, he'd done lots of, uh, at the time, it would have been called like pastoral counseling as head of household, and also a lot of relationships came out of that. Uh, and so, yeah, I probably have at least 100 aunts and uncles, people who lived with us, that we called <laughs> aunt and uncle Aww. growing up. But he would had a window into like how this wasn't necessarily helping people thrive as human beings, and so was charged with spearheading that um, investigation into the impacts of this training course. Mm. And at the end of that um, investigation, uh, he'd been the one given the task of sharing that with the, at the general community gathering, either at Pease Auditorium or Pioneer High School or wherever it was, I can't remember. And so when I returned from Belfast, um, he was in the midst of that. Mm. And, um, it was that fall, the beginning of my first year at Eastern Michigan University, where that meeting happened. And he got up on the stage and sort of outlined all of the things that were broken and not working that they'd uncovered in this study and um yeah, it's. Uh, I've listened to the recording, uh, and within the last couple of years, it was fascinating to go back, have, having this sort of memory of what that was when I was a kid, and then hearing it again as an adult with different eyes. And,
0: yeah, oh, fascinating. Oh, uh, and
2: you know, some of the women leaders came up after to like sort of offer their things as well, and just oh, so painful, so painful hearing that uh, in that context, and and hearing. Um, you know, Ralph Martin was sort of like emceeing it a little bit. And there was this weird, like non ownership at the MC level, Mm. but like the actual content of what was being shared was much more like direct and, um, to the point and not pulling punches. Mm. Uh, yeah. Anyway, fascinating dynamic. But afterwards, the way our family experienced it is there were really three outcomes. There was one group of people that said, yes, this there is something amiss here, but it can be reformed, it can be fixed. And so we can become like a kinder, gentler form of this. Uh, and that group became uh, with a ongoing word of God uh, expression. Mm-hmm. Then there was a group of people that said um, this is uh, yes, it's a mess, but it's fucked up at a fundamental uh, institutional level. This is, this is the natural outcome of this system. And so uh, this can't continue. And really those folks were like kicked out. Uh, there wasn't like necessarily the opportunity to leave, sort of like I quit, well, too late, you're fired already. Of we said it first.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> our,
2: our family landed in that, in that category where we were no longer participants in the word of God wow. or the sword of the spirit. Uh, within a very short time after that talk that fall and then there was a third group that was like it's not fucked up, fuck you <laughs> you know uh, yeah and that that uh, that became word of life and sort of the spirit and all of its yeah. other expressions anywhere. of course I'm paraphrasing what they said I didn't actually hear it directly that's just sure. sort of, no that's very helpful yeah. the lens I had on it. yeah and so but you know, there were these four fellowships that had been organized within the community for people to have communion because it was a parachurch organization. It wasn't a church. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I assume it still continues to think of itself as not a church. And so people were part of local churches. But those local churches weren't necessarily charismatic friendly or over time they would become more tuned in to the problems in the charismatic community and the leadership would there'd be conflict between people going to one priest or pastor who's saying like, hey, this isn't necessarily healthy or good what you're experiencing. And so to sort of prevent that, uh, there were these fellowships that were formed. There was a a free church fellowship. There was a Lutheran congregation. There was a Presbyterian congregation. And there was Christ the King uh, Catholic Church, which I think Ralph Martin went to the Vatican and got authorization from the Pope to uh, help that get launched uh, here in Ann Arbor uh, with some help from Tom Monaghan's uh, funding. Yes, I'm sure. of course. Right. Little. And um, yes. and casual so, because my parents had come in as atheists, we were part of a, uh, a a home church that had started in my family's living room when I was five because we couldn't find like church connection that sort mm-hmm. of fit and that was that's what at that time was emmaus fellowship and my dad was one of three leaders of that um fellowship one was a servants of the word guy uh named prentice tipton i think might be a catholic priest hmm. now one was a um a messianic uh jew named mark kinzer who's uh now over Zara Avraham as the rabbi hmm. there, a messianic congregation in Ann Arbor, and there was a fourth guy, Paul Beckman, and I, I don't remember if he was still part of he may have moved to like Minneapolis or some other okay. place by then. And my dad, and so at that point, I think because the others were more connected with Servants of the Word, which was the like you know bad news uh, for what's going on. Yep. Uh, my my dad became the pastor of that full-time pastor because he was no longer a head coordinator. He'd been a head coordinator and obviously that that was gone. He became the full-time pastor of that fledgling uh, free church hmm. congregation. So our family continued to have like religious involvement and a lot of relationship with people who were like community connected yeah. because they didn't necessarily stop coming to the free church fellowship and stop being part of the word of God in particular. There were very few sort of the spiriters who stayed, but the word of Goders stayed. So I had like ongoing social, spiritual relationship with people involved in the word of God for a number of years. Hmm. Uh, And that's why I ended up like a couple years later directing Pine Hills Camp because I was still like relationally connected, but part of a different like spiritual impetus Mm -hmm. in some ways. And um, tried to, you know, help Pine Hills be different than it had been. But that only lasted a year. And and uh, and it, you know, moved in a different direction.
0: Yeah, you You know, I (laughs) I say that
2: because that was my conscious intention. But like looking back at, you know, the journey I've been on since I I feel in some ways that My participation in that in some ways was like my participation in Honduras, you know, like, Mm. uh, yeah, I was trying to do some things in a different way. And nonetheless, I was still part of this thing that held space for suffering for a lot of people. And and maybe at best, I was functioning the way my dad had for me, which was like, you know, some small buffer <laughs> uh, between it. Yeah. But it's different than being out of it, you know? Yeah,
1: I think that's something that I've been, like, thinking about a lot. And Jackie, I think you have too. I know we've talked about it. But just that there's like this, of course, when you're part of something that you love and that's all you know and, and that seems like... It doesn't make sense to think about not having this system, like your first instinct is to try to fix it and to try to like, well, if I'm part of it, maybe I can change it, you know, like, maybe I can make these changes or influence it this way. And then it seems like oftentimes you kind of inevitably hit a point where you're like, we just need to get rid of the whole thing. <laughs> like this is just <laughs> the system's not fixable anymore. It's, it's in the just <laughs> like let's just try something different. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's a but it's a struggle I, to to like but it's accept so that. Hard. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I, um, you know, I encountered that. It took me many many years to like fully encounter that personally in my life. But in the time of growing up in the community. I had these experiences that I perceived and in some ways still perceive to be genuine and true, transcendent, uh, a sense of like connecting with what is real Mm -hmm. and deep, uh, part true to the pattern of the universe that were they were layered in all these stories. That came from that organization to serve that organization to serve mm-hmm. that organization as the word of God to serve that like larger Christian uh, organization or at least Western uh, you know post Roman uh, colonial uh, empire Christian <laughs> and and so it was very challenging to find ways to let go of and separate from those stories while staying connected or true or in embraced relationship with those other things that I had experienced. Yeah. And that made it it was a it was a much more gradual process for me of letting go. Whereas the like pressure for my younger sister was so high, like the toxicity was so high in her consciousness that she She just jettisoned all of it. And perhaps she hadn't even never had any of those things that I perceived as genuine to help her stay connected, Mm -hmm. which is like, you know, in some ways a mercy. It was really painful for her. Um, She told me a story about being in high school at Pioneer High School. Uh, I was two years older than she was, so it would have been my senior year. And at that time, high school, public high school started in 10th grade, not ninth. Oh, right. So she was going in out of Huron Valley School, like into the big public high school for the first time oh, wow. and she was in, <laughs> oh, a, in a math class. Um, you know, sort of in between bells, the one bell has rung to end the other class and people are still settling, getting their things. The teacher's there. And a, uh, a the editor of the school newspaper teacher, the teacher who ran the newspaper and also was an English teacher, came by and spied Maya in the classroom and, and uh, poked her head in and talked to Mr. Tabler, the math teacher, and was like, do you know who that is? You have in your class pointing at Maya? And Mr. Tabler's like, yeah that's that's maya and the english teacher said no that's jesse wilson's sister
1: oh you have wow. in your class
2: right oh so ugly I, you know i was i had been a good academic student or whatever and uh did some things for the newspaper and so sort of had this like weird legendary status mm-hmm. apparently and you know my sister would have grown up with that all the time as fucking jesse's like you know getting all the praise and here i am more talented and smarter in a whole bunch of ways and i just get suppressed for expressing that so this is happening there at pioneer high school mr tabler turned to that teacher and was like no this is Maya Wilson, oh. and she's incredible. And my sister wow. told she told me this, uh, you know, many many years later when I most needed it to hear it. She says I always felt sorry for you, Jesse, after that moment, because I knew you never got to have that feeling. Mm. Of being seen for who you were and not for what you could do or offer to somebody else. And when I felt that feeling, I knew that's the only feeling I care about in my life. And, you know, it was many, many years later before I began to, like, recognize, like, oh, that is such a richer, truer pathway to joy to follow that thread than this, like, oh, I'm making people happy uh, river. Um, you know in many ways that's what ended up on doing the the head pain for me was you know you're talking Evie about this challenge if do I get out do I how do I stay in relationship with a thing and I had stayed in relationship not with the Word of God specifically but with a lot of the energies connected to the Word of God in Christianity I'd become eventually after working in sales and marketing I'd continued working as a youth pastor volunteer and then became a pastor and started a church in Milan, a vineyard church, which had weird relationships with the word of God way back in the 1980s when John Wimber had come and done a conference at Chrysler Arena that word of God had all gone to, gone to because word of God was like trying to get some of the special sauce that they saw happening like in the culture Mm -hmm. around vineyard and healing and some of the celebrity John Wimber had because you know, Word of God had no, like, charismatic leader, really. Yeah. Um, uh, and they had just a lot of very rational people who'd experienced some charisma. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then very rapidly institutionalized it. Right, you know? right. And routinized <laughs> it. Um, it. <laughs> and uh And so... Uh, eventually, I tried to reform that thing. You know, as I was going on my own journey and and um, seeing some of the brokenness in the Christian approach to LGBTQ inclusion and uh, the way in which judgment and tree of knowledge of good and evil was really at the root of the whole thing. And ah, there's got to be a way to like let go of judgment and have love be the organizing principle. Yada yada yada. And I, I, some in that egoistic I can save the world like thing that had grown up in the community. I thought I could do it and I failed and everything was falling apart. And at a certain point, I either had to keep fighting it or embrace it. Uh, and it was like that, I was in that that place I'd been in Belfast, laying in my bed feverish and I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to buy some porn kind of place. And instead of here, Jesus, you take this, you know, I was finally at a place where I could go, oh, I can just walk out of this house. Mm. I've got to get out of this house yes. and out of yes. this thing, this, this whole thing. And so let go of that, closed the church, moved back to Ann Arbor. Moved back next door to a house of nuns who raised babies, you Whoa. know, who, um, <laughs> who are connected to the community. Oh my a guy and his wife who had lived with my family, hmm. Uncle Gene, <laughs>
0: know,
2: <laughs> and behind Ralph Martin and his family, I'm wow. living in that house. It was a it was a cluster house, you know, mm-hmm. built by the you... the Morris family.
0: Did you um, move there intentionally, knowing that that was the area, like, or I'm was just that gonna like sneak right here? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I moved there so intentionally I and because i had
2: I had no options. Uh, you know, to tell the story briefly, when the the Morris the Morrises and the Martins were related, uh, sister in law, brother in law, sort of thing. Okay. The, the Morrises were leaders in the word of God community when I was growing up and they moved to Akron Ohio because I think Bob Morris was maybe an attorney mm. and so he you know had a law firm opportunity there and they'd moved out of this house in this cluster with the Martins and the Watsons and the Christmases if any of those names are familiar yep. and uh, I at some point the Christmases and the Watsons moved there was some tragedy involving Uh, my friend Mike Watson's father had passed away and I think they'd maybe moved to Steubenville but my family had moved in uh, to that house because my dad had been ascending you know, to the ranks of head coordinator and, you know, and so proximity to power is so much of the game and like a bigger house, a bigger household. We had a bigger family. And so we moved into this house that the Morrises lived in, uh, for those who want a fun thing. And because he's a public figure, I think I can say this, but one of the friends of mine who lived in this house was the Fox news priest. Um, he was, I was in an emergency room with my (laughs) wife at the time. Uh, who was having like uh, meningitis or something, had to go to the emergency room. And I'm sitting in the waiting room and I look and the one of the popes had died or been shot or something, and they're interviewing the Fox News priest, And it's John Morris, who's like he'd become because he's good looking, wow, yeah. you know, and he was well spoken. And so he was the the, fo- the priest Fox News would bring on whenever they. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. All of you <laughs> podcast listeners who just heard me grab my <laughs> microphone. Um, and I was like, whoa, John Morris That's is the Fox priest. He, he ended up leaving the priesthood uh, to get married, like in an authorized way. And hmm. uh, if you watch Martin Scorsese's The Irishman um, with Robert De Niro and Pesci and all of that, uh, he's the priest. Uh, at the beginning of that movie. So he's he's found some portion of a career uh, in the movies. uh, That's
0: wild. Anyway, I would have sleepovers at this house. So my family moved
2: into this house and and stayed in it when I moved away. got married, had my family. I have three kids. And uh, eventually I got divorced, closed the church. All those things sort of happened in close proximity and needed a place to live. My mom had passed. My dad had remarried. The house was unoccupied and, Mm. you know, pretty unsellable because of its very strange location Mm -hmm. and and neighbors and a shared driveway with all of this. And so I had suggested that maybe I could take it over and pay for it through uh renting it on football weekends to people who Smart. come in large groups that come in so yes it was intentional but i didn't i was just intentional because of the survival it's like i sure. couldn't figure out any other way yeah. Yeah. uh to give my wife my ex-wife some peace uh, from my presence without getting out and not having any money and, um, and so uh living here this is a long way around to the headache But living here and like dating for the first time in my life and, you know, because I'd I'd met my wife in college before you were allowed to date and we'd Mm -hmm. been in a ballroom dance together because class together because that's not dating. And, uh, you know, we're having these like weekly dates, you know, right. Yeah. And, (laughs) and eventually like fell in love in that context. So I never, you know, had to break the rules about dating that even though we were out of the community, I still felt, felt in my bones. (laughs) Right. And, uh, and, and I'm like, Oh, if someone's coming over, like all these people are going to see, like, Oh, that me disgraced for loving gay people and divorcing my wife and not a practicing Christian anymore. And I'm living with these people who knew me as the obedient child, like during that time. And, you know, I'm going to leave my windows open. I'm going to be on the porch. I'm not going to go to church on Sunday mornings. They're going to see my car parked all weekend without going any place. Uh, I'm I might be under a microscope, but I don't give a fuck about the microscope yeah. anymore. And in many ways, no one gave a shit about me. In truth, like sure. I didn't have a church anymore. I was like anonymous. They'd already called me the devil. So there was like nothing could get <laughs> any worse. And and um, and that was hard. But I like felt like I need to like press into my yeah, vulnerability absolutely. and uh, and not care about making anyone happy anymore, especially these people that I why would I have any interest in making them happy anymore? I gave too much of my life to that. And um, I started doing this research project on inspiration. And I was interviewing this guy, you know, who lived a ways away from me. But afterwards, he was like, Can I interview you? And uh, like you interviewed me, I was like, sure, what a gift. How cool. And so he interviewed me and then he started asking about the head pain stuff. And he's like, so like, when did it go away? And I was like, oh, it, it never went away. Like I had it for the rest of and then I was like, wait a minute. I don't think my head has hurt for a couple of years. Like, i wow. it's so normalized that I'd forgotten about it. I was like, oh. It, that head pain was all that pressure, and now that that pressure's not there the my body doesn't need to tell me anything oh anymore so it stopped like yelling at me oh, oh It was like gosh. finally you got the message I just didn't know I'd gotten the message you know yeah Yeah. Uh, yeah. wow anyway uh, That's
1: wild. yeah what a
2: what a gift to uh to get out you uh, know I felt forced out in some ways, mm-hmm. but I also was privileged enough to be awake to while the forcing was happening so I could cooperate
0: mm-hmm. with
2: it mm-hmm. and recognize my failure to stay, you know, the futility of staying in. And, um, yeah. 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 So I've, I had so much gratitude for all the things I experienced growing up in community because I, you know, that thing, that little metaphor we were talking about at the beginning of like, a lot of it was challenged for me and, yeah. and it hurt a lot mm-hmm. in my not knowing what to do with it or cooperating with it in, in unhealthy ways and participating even in, in it impacting other people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and now, for the first time in a long time, uh, those things aren't challenges anymore for me. They just, just the gift of that challenge is what remains. And, and sometimes I get the opportunity to like participate in the undoing of that. For other people who I participated in hurting, like I was the pastor of this young woman who, um, after I was no longer a pastor, um, was uh, you know understood uh, her queerness and that she was a lesbian and she was getting married to a woman and she reached out to me. I was like, can you? officiate our wedding. And and I was like, you know, we had this conversation where I got to like talk to her about like, look, I know I wasn't intentionally creating an environment that you couldn't own your true self, but I was nonetheless a participant. And you Mm -hmm. have no idea what a gift it is to me to be able to like participate in you owning who you are and blessing that. And yeah, so.
1: That's awesome. So.
2: So some of it was quite difficult, not in the ways you know. I've heard a lot of folks on the podcast who experience the kind of difficulty they were aware of—an intensity of suffering yeah. that breaks my heart, and that you know everything in me wants to like rush in and like, is there a way? Can I put up a stop sign or you know? And I've heard some of the people who are missionally like doing that with their lives, trying to interrupt those cycles of abuse and mm-hmm. undo them and expose them and and all of that. And I was just like soaking up the good that was good Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: the good that felt good. That was damaging to me and others. And I was just oblivious Mm -hmm. to it, uh, generally oblivious to it all. I did have a therapist. Um, I was, you know, experienced some trauma in the closing of the church and met with this trauma therapist who uh, took me through this exercise where you imaginatively envision a loving presence with you in your trauma, apparently, uh, according to him, some of the trauma people experience is from being so alone mm-hmm. in the thing and so you like revisit the trauma and you insert an imagined presence into it and he wanted me to practice by finding a happy memory and then you know practice envisioning an, an imagined loving presence in that happy memory so that when we get to the like traumatic experience uh, you 're better at you know you know what to do. Yeah, exactly. And so he's like, find a happy memory. And I'm thinking, ah, that time when I won the national championship, that has in in Belfast, like I got to play for the Queens University team. We won the national championship. And I got to make the game-winning assist, you know, as the clock is expiring and crowd rushes on the floor. All I could remember in that moment was like going up in the air with the ball to take the final shot and seeing this Irish guy open on the baseline who didn't get to score that often and thinking, what would God want me to do? Should I score this and get the glory for myself? I'll be leaving Ireland. This guy's going to live here. He'll be a hero forever. What would my parents want me to do? It was just like this intensive Jeez. pressure of what's the right thing to do. It's like, I was like, I can't use that. It's not. It doesn't feel happy anymore. Yeah. That memory and like every I've, I had a you know I had loving parents and lots of laughter and like cool experiences growing up. I couldn't find any of them as happy memories Mm -hmm. because they were all for the first time i was like aware of all that pressure in it like you were talking about jackie at the very beginning that that question until i found a memory of being 11 years old and having been flown to germany on my own to go to this one of the first sort of the spirit youth camps with like the blue chippers from around the world. <laughs> Cause I was a you know, a coordinator son. And so I got, so I spent a month in Germany on my own with these kids from all over the world, which was an incredible experience. Yeah, in many ways And when I arrived, uh, I showed up in this small town with a bunch of German kids and they were playing soccer on this field and they didn't speak English, but I knew how to play soccer. And so I'm playing soccer with them and some of them are better than me. So I can't try and be the best because, you know, they've grown up with this thing like at a whole nother level. I don't know the language, but I know the sport. So I'm like participating and I can't impress anyone and no one knows who I am. They don't know any, This no, the obedient child hasn't been written yet. And I just felt free. And it was like this small little memory. And it was like the happiest I'd ever experienced in my life. Um, You know, it didn't last long, of course, because soon enough, you know, you show up and the parents of these kids know who I am and da-da-da-da-da, and I show up at the camp and Mr. Williamson wants me to hold his briefcase while uh, he's going about doing his leadership business, and so I stand there for like two hours in this room, not knowing if I can go anywhere, and meanwhile, the camp's going on other places, and I'm just like, Mr. Williamson wants me to hold the briefcase, you know, (laughs) like, what? (laughs) And then I, I oh, see him Jesse. on the soccer field watching all the kids playing soccer. And I'm like, I wonder, maybe he needs his briefcase. So I go up. I'm like, Mr. Williamson, here's your briefcase. And he's like, what? What? Oh, why are you holding my briefcase? And and I'm like I'm starting to get mad, but I have to suppress that anger because I'm like, no, no, no. Jesus wants me to suffer, you know, knowing that I did the good thing, and so I'm not going to complain that I didn't get to play soccer and that he forgot about. He didn't forget about me. He's just testing me. And he said, Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that hurts
0: my heart, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
2: it, but I I didn't I didn't think of that as a painful experience no, until. Yeah. Decades. Of course not. Yeah. Later. You
0: just had this yeah. terrible oh, headache for just some some <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Right. Oh man. Just oh. this little kid holding a briefcase. Yeah. I can't go play soccer. <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> that was
2: so That's all the story I had oh, in my God. head, you know, that I imagined <laughs> no, yeah. everyone else had in their of head. Yeah. Like, ah,
0: oh, yeah. Your story but is yes. so powerful. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, telling us about it.
2: I was listening to a a therapist this morning on a podcast, uh, James Finley, I think he's like one of the leaders of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque. And he was saying one of the things a therapist can do is be present to someone in a way that allows them to feel safe enough to like, get to the place where the hurt is. And so you know, you just ask questions like, that's interesting can you tell me more about that and then eventually the therapist feels like an ally in this exploration and then you you get to the thing and i feel in some ways like you guys have done that for me today i didn't know what to expect but um i don't know if it's because you're sisters and you have such like joy together but there's like a web of safety already that like i felt like i could enter into that you were inviting me into and then uh yeah I've, i've seen all kinds of things i hadn't seen despite a pretty introspective life uh just in sharing my story with you and uh i feel like the the heavy light paradox uh within me that (laughs) that always i feel when healing is happening so yeah thank you
1: thanks Jesse. yeah i mean i feel like definitely there's a a genuine feeling of when we come into this space together we want to hold the guest a little bit you know and 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 you and your story and give you that safety so i'm really glad that you experienced that because we i mean this wouldn't exist <laughs> without guests willing to be vulnerable and share and i mean that's it's like it really feels like an honor just to hear your story so i really appreciate you sharing it with us and with you know however many people listen
2: yeah, I, I feel so grateful to be at a place where I can share this story with this kind of freedom and uh, totally and enough distance to, uh, you know, laugh at it. <laughs> yeah, to be or, okay or laugh
0: after we myself. stop recording. <laughs> wow, isn't that fucked up? <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye. I was one of the fuckers in chief. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh man, well thank you again and thank you to everybody who keeps supporting us by listening um, we so appreciate you um, please, if you feel inclined, uh, rate and review the podcast uh, wherever you listen and uh,
1: do something nice for yourself and if you feel shitty, do something nice for somebody else
0: it helps preach <laughs> bye bye everybody bye. Bye.